0: thank you, Lord. It's all been worship. It's been music. It's been baptism. It's been gratitude and dedication of children to you. We've remembered you, Lord Jesus, through communion as you've told us to do. We've given an offering from what you first provided, and now we get to hear your word. Help me as I preach it and explain it. May it make a difference to me first before it ever reaches the hearer, but help us all obey you. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. We're having a great Sunday. Welcome. Here it is. It's the Bible. You'll need one. If you don't have one with you, please, you can look in the chairs near you. If money is tight and you don't have one at home, uh, please feel free to take the Bible you just picked up with you. We want everyone to have a copy of the Bible. And if you look at it, this is, this is my copy. This is my favorite copy of the Bible. Big book, isn't it? Do you understand it? Do you know how it ties together? Well, if you don't, I, I, I can't blame you, and there's no shame in that. We all start somewhere, and you have good reason for maybe not knowing how it all fits together. It's quite a bit. It's 1,189 chapters in 66 books written in three different languages Across about 1,400 years of time. In other words, it took about seven times longer for the Bible to be written from start to finish than the United States has even existed. Wild. Three different languages. Some 40 authors, obviously most of them never met, they didn't know each other. And yet one of the evidences that this actually is the Word of God is it tells a coherent story, as I'm going to show you from start to finish. It's an ambitious undertaking, but I promised you in the churchwide email, if you got it and if you didn't and you'd like it, just let us know on the card, that I'd show you the theme, the action running all the way through the Bible, the single great golden thread that ties the whole story together from first book to last, and I promised I'd do it in less than 40 minutes. You don't believe that's possible? We'll try. In the Bible, in these 1189 chapters, I'm told something very early that our trouble as a human race started early. That's in Genesis chapter 3. Think about that, 1189 chapters and everything has already gone to pot in the third There's only two chapters of bliss, of perfection in the Bible. It will all come full circle, as I'm going to show you at the end, but already in all of human history, very early on, the very first people did something that every human being, aside from Jesus Himself, has always done, and that's do their own thing. And disobey and rebel and sin, in other words. I say our trouble started early. That trouble has a name. That trouble is called sin. And nobody takes it very seriously. In fact, sin and being a sinner is, in 21st century America at least, has actually become a bit of a punchline for a joke. Said, like, ah, you sinner. But if you look at what Scripture says and you think carefully about life as you experience it, you'll understand how awful sin is. In fact, it's fatal. It kills everything it touches, including you, someday me. That is the nature of sin. The Bible says elsewhere, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what sin earns is death. And it gets discounted, it gets pushed aside, it's minimized in contemporary culture, but every single one of you has accounted for it today. You locked your doors before you came here. You experience the selfishness that is the hallmark of sin practically in every relationship in your whole life. That's why we have contracts instead of handshake agreements. That's why our relationships are always, no matter how close and how loving, they're always subject to a wind of distrust sweeping through them when that person starts acting a little bit differently. If we catch them on what we think is a lie, we fear that sin has entered that relationship and is beginning to spoil it. Sin is what makes all of life difficult. Even the best moments, even the greatest blessings are shot through always with a little bit of a shadow. And even on the perfect moments, we have to acknowledge that in their perfection, they must someday end. And that that blissful moment that we've enjoyed with each other can't go on forever. If you don't believe in sin, if you don't believe it's universal, just visit a preschool. You'll see asked to see the two-year-olds. Nobody has taught them to disobey. Nobody has taught them to be selfish. Nobody has taught them to be violent. They are. We talk about the terrible twos. My wife for years was a preschool teacher. I can tell you on the basis of her experience, two-year-olds could be pretty bad, three-year-olds are worse (laughs) because a three-year-old is a two-year-old with one year of experience on the job and (laughs) they're just better at it. But that's the reality of the world we live in, our trouble started early, and because of that fact, from the very first pages of Scripture, in fact from the 12th chapter, God stops dealing with all of the sinful nations and narrows His focus of redeeming and restoring and saving all who have fallen under sin, He narrows it down to one man, and we read that in Genesis chapter 12. God speaks to a man whose name will become Abraham. Today, he's called Abram when God speaks to him. And he makes a childless man a wildly miraculous improbable promise. Here it is. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families, tribes, clans, people groups, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Bible students know this as the Abrahamic covenant, the promise made voluntarily from God to Abraham. There's a lot of words here, but really there's just two concepts. There's two lines, if you will. The first line of the covenant is, I will bless you. In fact, if anybody opposes you, if anybody rises up, if anybody dishonors you, I'll curse them. I'm going to bless you. I am going to provide for you, Abraham. You will someday, you childless man, you will be actually the father of a great nation. So the first line is, I will bless you. Do you notice the second line, the bottom line of the covenant? What is it? Just read the Bible with me for a second. What's the bottom line of the covenant? First line, I'm going to bless you. Second line, you're going to bless others. The bottom line of all of God's covenants are the same. That Abraham himself is going to be blessed so that he will bless others. God has all of the nations in mind from the very beginning because it says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Tribes and tongues and clans that Abraham knew nothing about. This happened to him when he was in ancient Ur, modern day Iraq. Abraham would have grown up around and probably participated in and his ancestors in moon worship. But God breaks into human history, reveals himself personally to this single individual with this amazing promise, I'm going to bless you, and because I'm going to bless you, one man, God says, will bless the whole world. And from that man, a nation was born. And that's really the bulk of the Old Testament, is reading the story of the history of a nation that came to be called after one of Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. One man will bless the whole world, and God opens up the scope from a single man to a whole nation called Israel that he will bless, and that nation will bless and represent him to the pagan nations surrounding it. Look what it says in Exodus. This is God in the wanderings of Israel on their way to the land that God has promised them. In other words, these are the days and these are the books of Moses. God made Israel a promise. The promise that was first made to Abraham now extends to all of his descendants. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That's special. Of all the nations of the world, God tells Israel, I have chosen you. All the peoples, it's not a misprint. It means people groups, tribes, ethnic differences. They all exist already. Among all of those different clans and peoples, you shall be my treasured possession, for all the earth is mine. I own everything, I made everything, but you will have a special relationship with me. And here's the purpose. It always has other people in mind. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that's a little, that's a little different for most 21st century Americans to think about what a priest does. The idea of a priest in any religious thought is this a priest is someone who can give you access to God. You come to the priest, and the priest somehow joins hands with you and joins hands with God and presents God to people and people to God. He's a bridge, he's a key, he's a door to give access to God. God's using that language. And the point is, I'm going to make you a holy nation. All the nations around Israel were indescribably wicked. One of their ancestral enemies that lived in the land right beside them had the barbaric custom of taking babies alive and burning them, placing them on a scorching hot idol and burning them alive in pagan awful worship. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen the cruelty, the barbarism, the awfulness of those religions, and God says, you're going to be different. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be separated to me. And if you read the law of Moses, you'll notice that for all of its strictness, it's woven through with mercy and love, including instructions to look out for foreigners and immigrants and widows and the poor. No one else did this. No other nation accounted for compassion and mercy to other nations. Israel is supposed to because they are to have a personal relationship with God and shine so brightly as a nation that they represent Him. What God is doing here is making a whole nation to simply represent Him. And I can read from the Psalms that they knew what they were supposed to be doing. See, we've already reached the middle of the Bible. Isn't this encouraging? In Psalm 67, Israel sings. See, when you open up the Psalms, you're opening their hymn book. These are the songs written by Israel across centuries. These are the songs they sing together to God. And the thing about songs is they always represent us at our best. Take our national anthem here in the United States. What are the last two lines? You're singing it in your mind, aren't you, to try to remember? It. What are the last two lines? Land of the free and home of the Now, let me just ask you, are we all brave? No. Why do we sing that? Because we all want to be. We aspire all to be brave. We can celebrate together that we're free, although not all of us may be on any given day. But we can all aspire to be brave. That's how songs, many of them, work. That's how the Psalms work. That's how our hymns work. There's an old hymn we sang a lot when I was on staff at this church in my early days. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I, do you know the rest of this? Freely give. Really? Really? Do you, in fact, surrender all to Jesus? When you give it to Him, do you give it freely? Not always, not every day, but you hope to. That's how songs work. That's why love songs promise things that very few men ever deliver on. (laughs) Climb the highest peak, plumb the deepest ocean. Bro, you won't even take out the trash. Come on. (laughs) But we sing of our best hopes. That's why we promise great things, not something more honest that some men might write. Like, I'd love to be with somebody else, but I don't think I can do any better. That'd be a terrible lyric, wouldn't it? That love song does not exist for a reason. We sing of ourselves as our best understanding, our highest hope, our best version. Listen to Israel sing when they're inspired and carried along by God. When they're at their best, listen to what they think of themselves and want for themselves and actually what they're asking God to do for them. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Then a Hebrew word, selah, Nobody's quite sure what it means. That's why it hasn't been translated. It's a pause. Scholars think it's likely a musical notation. In music, it would be called a rest. In other words, it's a break in the singing, and probably devotionally, the psalmist is saying to Israel, think about what you just sang. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you O god let all the peoples praise you let's stop right there for a minute did you notice the covenant what did they ask for in the first line god here's what we want you to do you want we want you to do what to bless us be gracious to us bless us make your face shine upon us why did they ask for that blessing So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples, let all the tribes, clans, let all the nations praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's the same dynamic found in Genesis 12. God said to Abraham, undeserved and unsolicited, I will bless you and you will bless all others. His nation said, yes, God, please bless us, but not for us. Bless us so that all the nations may know you. We'll keep reading. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. In other words, he's not only to be the God of Israel, he's to be the God of the entire earth that he made. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. They're farmers. They depend upon favorable seasons if they're going to eat. They stop and they acknowledge, we've eaten today. We've been blessed. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. You see that? It's always the same way. Israel is now singing what was promised To Abraham. In other words, Israel was blessed to be a blessing. What God is doing in the Old Testament is something that is hidden to our sight until we read the Bible straight through and see what God was doing from the very beginning. God's intention was in the Old Testament was to create a nation so holy, so different, so separate that Israel would draw them in. A light in a dark place that wasn't going to the nations, but living among them in a way that was so holy, so right, so pure, so righteous, so shockingly merciful and kind that the nations, growing up in the cruelty of their own ways and their own sin, would be drawn in. The trouble was that Israel never represented Him very well for very long. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this dynamic. What is continually happening with Israel? They've been placed there as people who represent God. They're still to live so differently that people are drawn to God. What do they normally do instead? Ah, cool, an idol. Well, what's that idol about? We'll go kill our own kids. And they did. They continually adopted the idols of the nations around them. Rather than be representatives, rather than picture God, they adopted the practices and the evil and the sin of the people all around them. They never represented him well, but God is on a mission, and God did not change his purpose. He just changed his method. And Paul, who grew up an ultra, ultra ultra-Orthodox observant Jew in a very strict group, the most zealous of all group, called the Pharisees, who knew most or not all of the scriptures likely by heart? In other words, if Paul were teaching from the Old Testament, he wouldn't need, as I do, to look down and read. Paul could have given you the scripture from memory. Paul reread his Bible once he met Jesus, once this skeptic who thought Jesus was a farce and the whole thing of his death and resurrection was a ruse and a fake. Paul met Jesus and upon going back to his scriptures saw that God had promised this all along. And he explains it to some former pagans in the first century called the Galatians. Here's what he said to them. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Look at the first phrase. When the fullness of time had come. I don't want to take more than a minute to try to explain that to you. But with his vision cleared by God, Paul understands that Jesus came at the best possible time in history where God had literally arranged the history and the culture and the language of the world so that when Jesus came, his message, his name, and his salvation would go everywhere at once. Here's what that looked like. The Greeks had run the world before Paul's time. They had given a large part of the world at that time, a common culture and a common language. Wherever you were from, because of the pervasiveness of Greek culture, everyone that Paul came into contact spoke at least some Greek. Then the Romans came and they took care of everything. But Greek language and Greek culture remained. And in the time between the Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus... The Jews, who had been scattered by persecution, as they always were, had put synagogues all over the Roman Empire, and something incredible and unthinkable had happened. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, had been translated into Greek. So all across the vast Roman Empire, people could read and understand a common language, and they had these little Bible teaching outposts where the Old Testament was read in the language that everyone understood. The Romans, for all their cruelty, guaranteed religious freedom. As long as you didn't bother the empire, believe anything you want. So, Jesus comes in the fullness of time. And his single life with no internet, with no mass communications, comes into a world where God has literally orchestrated world history and the rise and the fall of empires so that his son can be known explosively all across the empire in the span of just a few decades. That's at least part of what Paul means when he says the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, In other words, it's not an angel. It's not an apparition. It's an actual human being. He really will be born into a cradle. He really will die on a cross. And that human being, though the Son of God, is going to be born under the same law that rules every human being. He's going to be born under God's law. And as I said earlier in the service, he's going to obey it perfectly. It's one of those quiet little verses in the New Testament, but in the Gospel of Luke, it explicitly says that Jesus went home with his parents and submitted to them. In other words, from childhood, Jesus was obedient to his parents. Can we check? Have you been obedient to your parents? Any of you? Not me. I gave my parents grief. I had my mother crying for me in prayer For a very, very long time. That's the human condition. Every single human being born into this world defies God and defies rightful authority pretty much their whole life. But Jesus is born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, he's going to rescue you and save you if you trust him from all of your law breaking. And it's better than that. It says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, you come into a relationship with God that you're not, you're not just his servant, his employee. You're not just his subject as if he were a king and you a mere vassal. No, God is going to bring you into his family at the cost of the life and death and resurrection of his son. And he's going to treat you as his beloved daughter, as his beloved son. He's going to love you and treat you as if you had the righteousness and the goodness and the mercy and the perfections of Christ himself because that's why Jesus came to trade lives with you. And Paul knows that all of this is what God had in mind and what God is doing here simply is not changing his purpose. His purpose was always to reach the nations. His purpose never changes. His method does. God sends His Son. Jesus understood it. In Mark 10, verse 45, listen to Jesus speak of His own self-understanding. He's telling you why He came. Read this with me. You're quoting Jesus when you read this. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This one's really clear. It's not as complicated as the last verse. There's just one little tidbit that might escape you. Jesus refers to Himself in the third person. He calls Himself the Son of Man. Why? Generally speaking, when people refer to themselves in the third person, we look at them a little strangely, right? You wouldn't want me to say, well, Bruce thinks… Bruce is going to look out for Bruce. What's wrong with you? Why is Jesus doing it? Because He's picking up something from the book of Daniel. He's reading His Hebrew Scriptures. Daniel was written 700 years earlier, and it has this little title, Son of Man, which is a Messianic title. In other words, when Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, He's saying, I'm the one you were promised. You've read the prophet Daniel, I'm the man. I am the Son of Man. I'm the one that was promised in Scripture, but I haven't come to rule, not this time. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, and I've come to give my life as a rescue, as a ransom for many. We just celebrated that in communion. The picture of communion is the picture of the cost of our rescue. What did it take to take sin out of the way? This fatal thing that we all deal with that hurts all of us, that will eventually kill all of us. What did it take to deal with sin? It took the death of the Son of God. That's how serious it is, and that's how much this mission matters. And all Jesus has done is change the direction of the energy. The purpose is the same, to reach the nations. It's only the direction that's changed. That's why after His resurrection, Jesus said this. Jesus said to His apostles, it says Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. No one who hasn't risen from the dead can say such a thing. Because of that authority, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There they are again, the nations promised to Abraham. Jesus is saying, now you go to them. You teach them to follow me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Read the rest of it with me from baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you see what's happened? Israel was commanded, draw them in. Jesus came to us, and then he gathers his believers. He gathers and makes the church, and he says, church, don't draw them. Go to them. The purpose is always the same. The blessing of the nations, the forgiveness of sins from every tribe and from every nation, the only thing that has changed is the direction. Israel was to draw, the church is to go. Paul understood this. That's why he wrote again to the Galatians and the Scripture. Remember, that's the Old Testament for him, the Hebrew Bible, for that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, God had the nations in mind from the very beginning. He knew that no one could be saved by being good enough. Anyone that would be saved by God could only be saved if they trusted God. If they did what people do when they are saved by Jesus today. If they confessed themselves a sinner in need of salvation and said, God, it can't be me, it has to be you. The scripture for saying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In other words, the good news about Jesus was first heard by Abraham centuries and centuries before Jesus was born, before Abraham could imagine such a thing or know his name, because God said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. If I've explained this well, now you know where that quote came from. It came from Genesis chapter 12. In other words, the nations and the individuals in them were in God's sight from the very beginning. Is it going to work? What do you think? Is it working? There's only one way to know for sure, and that's to read the end of the book. You see, in this world... If you're here for the first time, the first time in a long time, Christian church is an odd thing to you. Let me just put it to you in plain English. You'll never save yourself. You can't ever be good enough. There are already things in your past and there will be future failures in your future that mean you cannot possibly save yourself. That's why when God saw his whole world lost in sin, he reached down to a single man, Abraham, who believed God and came into God's family. So, apart from ritual, apart from anything that human beings could do for God, simple trust in God and Him as Savior was all that was ever needed and the only possible thing that could save you. If you've come to church hoping that this will help, it won't. The only help this church, this pastor, this message can give you is point you to Jesus because Jesus isn't about helping, he's about saving. It's not that you do some, you do all you can and he'll cover the rest. No, we sing about it and we say Jesus paid it Oh, He didn't pay some of it. He paid it all, and that intention was in the heart of God because nothing has changed across human history. The only way anyone could trust God, could be saved by God, is to trust God as Abraham did. And then the direction of God's effort changes from drawing people to a nation that was supposed to be attractive and remind people and present people to God. They failed, and as he always intended, God sent his own son. Will it work? Here's what the end of the book says. John is given a vision of future history. I want you to catch that phrase. This hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. All prophecy is, is future history. It's future only for a time, but it's as certain as yesterday's news. And John looks forward Jesus allows him to see a vision of the future and look while wow, what he sees ties in all the way back to the promise first made by God to undeserving Abraham. John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to who? The Lamb, that's Jesus. They're celebrating, we could not save ourselves, you have saved us. Did you notice where God and where His Son, Jesus Christ, saved people from? Look at it. Every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, all gathered around and worshiping Jesus together. So the hateful, violent racism that is destroying and eroding our country and nations all around the world, because it's not only a national problem, it's a worldwide problem. People have hated each other hatefully without cause from the very beginning. Our trouble began in Genesis chapter 3. That's why God reached down in Genesis chapter 12 and started a sacrificial effort to gather people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. What will it take to gather all of those people and to heal all these hurts and redeem all these souls? It will take only the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. And what you and I are, well, we're just disciple-makers. The risen Christ gathers his disciples and says, now you go tell them. In other words, church, and this is the end, God is a missionary God, so we are a missionary people. We are blessed as Abraham was. We are blessed to be a blessing. And we are, most of all, in this day, we are disciples who make disciples. This is what ties the whole Bible together from its 12th chapter to its last where the perfection of the first two chapters is restored when you move from perfection all the way through sin and death and loss and the failed effort of Israel to reach the nations and the perfect saving effort of Christ for to redeem the nations that were promised to Abraham from the very beginning. It all wraps up in the last of those 1189 chapters and the task before us today is to proclaim and present this Savior. How many of us are missionaries? All of us. If you associate the task of reaching the nations only with those like the Wilson family who will soon go to Africa, you've missed the point of Scripture. I've been a foreign missionary. I was raised by missionaries. I can tell you from personal experience, it may take more courage to speak the name of Christ and present the good news to your own family than it does to go all the way across the world. It's harder to speak up in the office. It's harder to speak up in close relationships. Wherever God has placed you, that's your network. Those are the people you are to present Christ to. Those are those who do not yet know Christ. You may be the only hope they have. But if you know Christ, now you know what ties the whole Bible together. The effort, the sacrificial effort of God to, at the cost of his own life, save people who will represent him and proclaim the good news of his son so that people from all tribes, tongues, nations, clans, histories, past shames, past guilt, past crimes, could all be saved and gather around the throne saying, salvation belongs not to us, but to our God. That's what ties this all together. That's why we give an offering. It's not to keep a budget. It helps keep the lights on and that's important, but that's not what it's about. It's about what we've been seeing these last few weeks, people placing their trust in Christ and being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That should be ordinary. I pray to God that would be a weekly occurrence. That just as some in the confines of our church family and our relationship have trusted Christ as their Savior this week, and through some of our missionaries that I met with this week, I know that people have come to Christ from the nations. That's why we do what we do. Whatever we're doing, whether it's fun or difficult. Whether it involves the work on this corner or the work that extends around the world, it's all for Christ in cooperation with this God-sized effort to reach the nations. So consider this your commission if you hadn't heard it. It's not from me, it's from Jesus. Be a disciple who makes a disciple. Let's pray. It would be a mistake on my part not to ask you about your own soul. I took the whole Bible to do it, but I told you as best I could in the language I have that you cannot save yourself, that only Jesus can do that for you. Have you trusted him? Do you have the assurance of your salvation this morning? If you don't, could I invite you to turn away from whatever it is you've been doing? Maybe you thought coming here would help, get you straightened out. It won't. Not if you don't trust Jesus. All we're trying to do is to present you to Jesus, present Jesus to you so that you will trust him so that he can save you. So please, I'm asking you for your sake, if you're not sure of your salvation, to pray to him, not to me but to him and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've I've rebelled. I've broken your law. My conscience tells me so. I've made a mess of it. I've, I've done so much wrong. But I'm turning now and I'm asking you to save me, to forgive me. I don't deserve it, but I trust your love and your mercy to do it for me. Please save me. Give me your eternal life. Teach me to follow you and live for you. And those aren't magic words. That's just one expression, one way of saying what every person must do to have a relationship with God, turn away from themselves and their sin and turn to Jesus. He will welcome you. He will save you. If you do that, please take a moment, fill out the card that's in the bulletin, hand it out hand it back to us at the end of the service at the hello table put it in the boxes as you leave we want to celebrate with you i want to pray for you if you'll let me i'd love to help you with your first steps to do what jesus said next and teach you to obey jesus along with me and the rest of us and christian if you're already saved this is your purpose it spans the whole bible it'll resonate in eternity when you get there what you're going to see is tribes tongues languages People groups, massive cities, tiny tribes, all saved by Jesus, all family in God's family because of the sacrifice of Christ. If you haven't been loving, if you haven't been witnessing, if you haven't been serving, is something like an offering is something that you leave to others. Please understand all of those things, and many more I can't don't have time to mention, those all have to do with being obedient to God to reach the nations, starting from this corner in Huntington Beach. So if you've been a little lax, if you've been a little self-involved, why don't you ask Jesus to forgive you, put you back on mission, your family, your friends, to be reached by Him. Lord Jesus, Thank you. Thank you that this this great book across all these years tells a single story of your redemptive love. Help us to live, love, serve, sacrifice, give, forgive all the things, Lord, that you do and that you've taught us. Help us to do them in obedience to you so that people who don't know you could be saved and join us in the great celebration. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.